Join me in your copy of the scriptures at Hebrews chapter 3, which will kind of provide the uh, framework for our time together. But let me start by saying how honored I am to be in this pulpit. Um, Calvary Community has blessed me for many years, uh, going back to Pastor Matson, who personally led a group of young pastors and mentored with leadership skills. And so we met about every other month over here in the fellowship hall, and he poured into my life, and actually that led to my coming to Walworth County as uh, God worked through uh, Pastor Howard as, uh, and, and the things that he spoke to my life. And then Pastor Doug's uh, love for men has inspired me as I had the opportunity to share in several of the Catalyst conferences uh, here in recent years. And I do count Pastor Chuck as a personal friend as uh, we can often be found uh, sharing a meal together somewhere around here in the county, uh, whether it's an early breakfast or uh, grabbing a quick sandwich in the middle of the day, just to talk about what it means to represent Christ and to lead his people. I consider it a privilege to speak to you. And if I can be of a particular blessing to you, feel free to contact me via one of the methods that is on the screen. One of my passions is to leverage technology to communicate God's Word. So if the Holy Spirit prompts you to post something to Facebook or to send out a little tweet about something that is said today, it would not offend me in the least to see those electronic devices come out. As a matter of fact, as Chuck said, I am in transition and I'm currently providing for my family by selling electronic devices. So if any of you have need... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But I, I do believe that God's word is not only to be consumed, it is to be shared. And God gives us many ways that we can do that. I found that transitions can be exhilarating and transitions can be downright exhausting. They can be exciting and they can elicit fear. Change sometimes is sudden and other times is painfully slow. Some of you here this morning are commencing from student to the workplace. Some of you find yourselves between marriage and singleness. Some are, wary, are weighing career and retirement options. Some are caught between sickness and health. Some of you are moving into parenthood or facing the quietness of an empty nest. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> we thought we were entering the, or entering the empty nest until our oldest came back home. But uh, she's a blessing, and so we enjoy the transition and whatever that means. And as a church, the facility and the staff, change is occurring all around but I am convinced that the church's best days are in front of her. Some yearn for a day of the past. Some would simply say, oh, if we could just return to Acts chapter 2, if we could be a New Testament church, then everything would be perfect. But the early Christians never fully expanded God's kingdom or Jesus would have returned. 
Some want to return to the early American revivals where prayer gatherings went for hours and crusades lasted for weeks. But Jesus didn't return because there was still a task to accomplish. Some want to return to the late 19th century when gospel singing was led by Ira D. Sankey and preaching by men like Billy Sunday and Dwight Moody saw thousands walk the sawdust trail and give their hearts to Christ. But Jesus did not rapture the church because his work wasn't done. And many of you have great memories of God's power being demonstrated through this congregation and God's presence being felt through staff members and lay leaders who are no longer here. And in this disequilibrium of transition and change, with all of the uncertainties about what the future may hold, it is natural to want to retreat to something that was known, something that can be remembered. But Christ is leading his church forward as a bride preparing herself for her wedding day. If we keep looking over our shoulder or watching the rearview mirror, we may miss an important turn as we are being led forward towards a new and a better future destination that God has for her church. In recent weeks, as we've gathered in this room, we have learned that we have joy in a living hope. We have confidence because we know Jesus is in the boat with us. And then we were told that God's will is working through us and in spite of us to accomplish God's purpose. Last week, we found that Jehoshaphat gave a positive example to follow. When things seem hopeless, worship and see the mighty hand of God accomplish purpose. And today, as we gather in Hebrews chapter 3, we find a negative example for us to avoid and advice that will lead us to a better future. God's intended destination can be missed if we allow ourselves to become distracted by the past. I've told people in the past, and I say it again today, it is time to take our hats off out of respect for the past, but it's time to take our coats off as we move forward with where God is moving us. In verse 7 of the text that is in front of us today, we see that Hebrews starts with the, the author explaining that Jesus is greater than any of the angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people, and that both Jesus and Moses are examples of faithfulness compared to the Israelites who were an example of unfaithfulness. The writer of Hebrews starts today's text by stating that although he is about to draw from history, the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. For verse 7 begins, So as the Holy Spirit says, in the current, in the present, the Holy Spirit is reminding us that there are lessons we can learn from the past as we continue to move into the future. 
These verses are actually set in a historical setting, for verses 7 through 11 are actually a story that recounts something that happened in Numbers chapter 14, an incident that happened as far back as 1400 B.C. Now, some of us have seen the movie with Charlton Heston portraying Moses which concludes with Moses coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and he finds the people celebrating in debauchery. But unfortunately, that was not the low point of the Israelite nation. For they continued to gripe and to complain about how good they had it back in Egypt until God finally has had enough And he determines, your bodies will litter the desert. But because I am a covenant-keeping God, your children will receive the promise that I intended for you. It appears to me that the Israelites seem to have a problem with nostalgia. For whenever things get uncomfortable or thoughts of the future begin to generate fear, they begin to long for a familiar past. But I found that romantic recollections of the past are rarely accurate. Even though they had personally witnessed God's supernatural goodness to them over and over, when they got thirsty, when they got hungry, when they got anxious, they yearned to retreat to Egypt. They seemed to have forgotten the slavery. They seem to have forgotten the murder of their children. They seem to have forgotten the harsh taskmasters who abused them. But in the midst of transition, they said, we want to go back to Egypt. So within this historic setting, we actually have timeless instruction. For verses 7 through 11 in today's text is actually a quote of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. I heard it said that a wise person will learn from his mistakes. A very wise person will learn from somebody else's mistakes. And Psalm 95, Numbers 14... Hebrews 3 gives us the opportunity to learn from somebody else's mistakes. This is such an important lesson that it is repeated so many times throughout the scriptures. It's first recorded by Moses when it happens. He writes down the story about 1400 B.C. Then somewhere between 1400 and 500 B.C., Psalm 95 is written. As the people were called to worship, their worship was set within the boundaries of remember of the disobedience of our people. And then approximately 500 B.C., after the Babylonian captivity, when our current book of Psalms was brought together as a package the editor determined that this story was so important it needed to be included. And then sometime between A.D. 65 and 70, the writer of Hebrews says, let's remember what happened with the children of Israel. Now, I often do not get things the first time that my wife tells me. 
But any time a story is told this often, it is worth giving special attention. And these five verses between 7 and 11 can actually be summed up in about four words. They heard, they hardened, they provoked, and they perished. So what is the lesson that we take away from this often repeated story? The first lesson I see is an overt warning in verse 12. When we recall their mistake, what do we learn from that? What we learn is that we need to watch our hearts. Watch your heart so you don't head down the same path. For during times of transitions and change, our hearts are especially vulnerable to heart problems. For the discomfort of change leads us to believe that somehow we are entitled to a little selfishness. We begin to feel sorry for ourselves, and we focus on our own desires and our own comfort rather than the will of God and what is good for those who are around us. In a church where transitions can often be long, I have seen congregants who become critical of leadership and begin to assert their own individual agendas. This was the problem with the Israelites, and it's something we need to be on guard to avoid. As Pastor Chuck told you, I found myself in transition. And some well-meaning people have encouraged me, Dave, for you to be able to move forward, you need to go back and to revisit the pain. You need to embrace all of the loss that you lost Uh, from your past position and from your past influence. And only after you embrace the pain will you be able to move forward. And I appreciate the well-intended device, but I choose to ignore it because I choose to believe that the church best days are in front of us. And rather than revisiting the pain, I choose to be a man of faith, a man of trust, a man of obedience, was going to guard my heart against bitterness because revisiting the past can so quickly turn to bitterness and poison an entire congregation that God is trying to move forward. So how do we avoid this path of pain? I see it in verse 13 as a, a bit of kind advice or helpful instruction. The helpful instruction is simply this. Care for and encourage one another. How do we avoid feeling sorry for ourselves? By looking for somebody else to care for. How do we avoid the pity party? By looking for somebody else to encourage. And that is the message of verse 13 of today's text. You need to take heed to get to care for your own heart by at the same time looking for others that we can encourage. The best thing that you can do to protect your heart is to commit to an accountability partner or a discipleship relationship or to get involved in a group where people are speaking the truth in love into your life. I found that worship experiences like this weekend are phenomenal and they are essential 
But I found that lasting transformation happens when you make yourself vulnerable to another person or to a group of people who can say the tough things into your life to speak the truth in love to you. Groups are not only a place of transformation, though, but they're also a a great source of the care and the encouragement that we read about here in verse 13. In the last 10 days, our family found ourselves in a situation where we needed to move quickly. And I do not know what I would have done if it had not been for the small group with whom I have invested my life in recent years. For they came together and they responded with boxes, with dollies, with trucks, with packing tape, and literally with dozens of hours of packing, moving, and unpacking as we move from Elkhorn to Delavan. And when we were emotionally spent and could not make another decision, they lovingly stepped in and took charge of the circumstance. That's why verse 13 tells us, not only do you need to guard your own heart, you need to get involved in community. Isn't that the middle name of this church? Calvary Community Church? For while God has brought wonderful, godly men to lead this congregation in its past, this church is not defined by its staff. It's defined by people caring for one another and carrying out the cause of Christ within Williams Bay and the surrounding community. So we have the challenge of verse 13, but in verses 14 and 15, I'm made aware of a rather compelling contrast. The contrast in verses 14 and 15 is that between those who are faithful to the very end and those who choose to give up. Those who hold firm to trusting faith are those who have truly come to share in Christ, as opposed to those who hear then allow their hearts to become hardened and rebellious. I've heard it said that when the going gets tough, the tough get... But as I read verses 14 and 15, when the going gets tough, the tough keep trusting that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, and that God has a provision. Sometimes we give faith a chance, and then when it doesn't meet our expectation, when it doesn't happen in the time that we want things to happen, we then take matters into our own hands, and we use our own logic to come up with a plan. It's as if we say, okay, God, I gave you a chance. You dropped the ball. I'll take it from here. Those are not the ones who have come to share in Christ. Remember Abraham and Sarah and Hagar? It's a perfect example of humans getting in the way of God's plan. Ask Sarah how that worked out for her. And last week, Dr. McGarry used Jehoshaphat as an example of when things look impossible, worship and see the hand of God move forward. The verse on the front of your worship folder this weekend reminds us, lean not on your own understanding. A compelling contrast between those who trust and those who act in the flesh. 
And then verses 16 through 18 goes on to show the outcome of those who lose faith, those who tr- begin to trust in their own logic. Verses 16 through 18 describes a dangerous decline. In verse 16, we read of those who disbelieve, those who doubt, those who have heard the goodness of God and choose to ignore the message. But it doesn't stop with doubt, for their doubt then moves into disobedience. Those described in verse 17 as those who sinned, those who incurred the wrath of God. Who here this morning wants God to be angry with them? I've lived long enough to know that some of my choices have put me in the proverbial doghouse. But that is nothing compared to putting myself under the wrath of God. We read verse 17 about those who sinned are the bodies that fell in the wilderness. This word bodies in verse 17 is kind of an interesting word. For it's not the common Greek word that the authors of the New Testament use to talk about bodies. For they could talk about, they could use the word soma as in a psychosomatic illness, mind over body, that word soma is a very common Greek word and was often used in the New Testament to talk about our physical bodies. There was a second Greek word that was often used, and it was the word sarx, which describes our... But the writer here does not talk about the bodies in the desert. It doesn't talk about their flesh in the desert. But it's a unique word that only appears this place in the entire New Testament. And whenever a word is that unique, that special, it deserves some special attention. What is unique about this word? Well, it carries with it the idea of a carcass, of roadkill. For those who disbelieved became disobedient, and because they were disobedient, they became roadkill in the desert, a carcass on the side of the highway. Those who disbelieved were disobedient. Because they were disobedient, they became roadkill, and they were displaced, meaning they never entered the place that God intended. God intended to bring the people to a place of abundance, a place of provision, a place of rest, and they never entered his rest because they got distracted with doubt leading to disobedience. And I tell you this morning, if you or your family find yourself in the midst of transition, the only thing that will keep you from God's provision is your disobedience. And as Calvary finds itself in facility and staffing transitions, the only thing that will delay God's provision is disobedience. It's a serious word. And we need to take heed that we do not begin to doubt, that we do not disobey, so that we miss the place that God intends to move us in the future. And then verse 19 has an interesting way of restating and emphasizing the lesson to be learned. For what started as an overt warning now becomes a covert warning 
to remember. For it says in verse 19, So we see that, we, that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The word see in verse 19 is an interesting word because a verb tense. Now, I don't get real geeked out about vocabulary and grammar, but my um, seminary professors told me whenever the verb tense changes, you need to ask yourself why. Something significant is happening. And so with this verb tense change from the past tense to the singular, we say, now this is what they did. This is how they behaved. These are the consequences of their decisions. But now we see that we need to do something with that information. And what we see is that we now understand that unbelief will rob us of God's blessing. Just as the children of Israel, what is the Holy Spirit saying? The Holy Spirit is saying we can now understand that unbelief robs us of God's blessing. The other interesting thing about this verse, for those who really love uh, grammar, is that the word unbelief is in an, an emphasized position within the clause. It's in a position that says, pay attention. This is a word that would be in bold and underlined and highlighted in yellow. Pay attention. This is what we need to get. It's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, we can now understand that those who miss God's blessing is due to, wait for it, unbelief. And so I wonder this morning, as we gather together as God's people, are we a people that are marked by trust or a people that are marked by unbelief? Are we a people that are marked by obedience or a people that are described by disobedience? I wonder, are we a people who are committed to community or are we a people that live in isolation? For verse 13 instructs us to help one another to guard against an unbelieving heart. Verses 14 and 15 challenge us to firmly hold our confidence and to lean not on our own understanding. And verses 16 through 18 have told us that disobedience will cause us to miss God's provision. And as the writer says in Deuteronomy, choose you this day. He's laid before us a choice, life or death, obedience or disobedience, faith or doubt. Father, we have looked at the story of your children, the people that you loved, the people with whom you made promise, and we want to gain wisdom. We want to learn from their mistakes so that we do not repeat, so that we do not become the carcasses in the desert. Father, I pray in this moment, as your spirit speaks, that we would be afresh, committed to community. 
that we would be afresh described as people of trust, not doubt. And Father, for the times where even earlier today we have disobeyed you, we ask your forgiveness, we repent of that which is offensive to you, and we receive your forgiveness, knowing it's all covered in the blood of Christ so that we can move forward as people of obedience, trust, and community. We pray all of this before your holy throne in the name of our Savior, being prompted by your Spirit. Amen.